This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to another episode of Future You. I'm Michael Horn, the uh, Chief Strategy Officer at Entangled Group that is helping uh, put on this podcast, and as well as a distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute, joined by Jeff Salingo. Jeff, it's great to be here. Uh, Jeff Salingo, I'm a, a professor of practice and a special advisor to the president at Arizona State uh, University, which is also helping us put on this podcast. And we're actually here uh, at the new DC Center of, uh, of Arizona State University, which just opened. So you might be hearing some hammers and drills in the background uh, or some car noise because we're right here on the street level uh, at 18th and, and I. Um, but it's great to be here and, and welcome to another episode of Future You. And we're playing with format. You'll get that sense. But basically what we're going to be doing is doing really interesting interviews. And we've got a really interesting one uh, with the president of Northeastern coming up, uh, but also us bantering a little bit and talking about the issues of higher ed of the day and, and certain issues that we'll continue to revisit, I think, and dig deeper over time on. But we'll also get to know each other a little bit more through the, through this. Uh, as I've said, you have clearly have a voice for radio, uh, and I, I, I think I have the looks for radio. So uh, together we'll make a good team. But, uh, you know, what's interesting, well, we've talked about how you've gotten into higher education and, and the Chronicle and, and your illustrious career there, reporting and then editing. Uh, but you had a certain start with U.S. News and World Report in this space that I think would be interesting to the listeners. Yeah, so you know, even though I worked for the Chronicle for 16 years, my my probably my foray into higher education reporting really started in uh, the summer of 1994 uh, when I interned uh, between my junior and senior years of college at uh, U.S. News and World Report, which was over here, not far from where we are today on N Street, um, owned by well, still owned by Mort Zuckerman, and it was still when it was a magazine. Uh, there was still a print magazine There's back. Still Back in those days, but I I was one of uh, about 12 interns who worked on the college guide uh, that summer. And so I spent my summer calling colleges and universities to confirm their data. Uh, for the rankings and also to do some small stories on, on colleges and, and universities. So I would basically spend my day in the basement, in this windowless room in the basement with interns. We had somebody from uh, UNC Chapel Hill. We had somebody from Yale, uh, George, uh, James is that, Madison. Is that the year that you switched the formula? Well, so you know, we, used to, one? we also had one from, we also had an intern from Princeton. Uh-huh. Uh, and so the joke that summer was if with just a couple of keystrokes, we could change the rankings. Um, yeah. They really put a bunch of you know 19 20 year olds in charge of those rankings uh that uh that summer but um but we're really the you know that got me kind of in, you know t- calling these colleges and universities to to confirm these numbers back then they probably didn't try to game the rankings as much as they they do today but but i really did see the inside of that rankings business and you know and u.s news and world report at that time was the only place in that business and we know that there's been a you know, a foray of, of new a new group of of of, col- uh, of magazines that have gotten into the rankings business over the years, but but it it was and it still is for U.S. News and World Report a huge part of their uh, part of their business. Uh, now, so Michael, you uh, you also had um, experience in covering higher education in, in college, working for like I did my college newspaper. You worked for your college newspaper at at Yale, and you covered somebody uh, who uh, ended up making a big name for himself in higher ed. Yeah, President Richard Levin. Yep. Uh, Rick Levin is. As he's known to those who who, who get to know him uh, better, uh, and it was fascinating. So I had what was called the Woodbridge Hall beat uh, my sophomore <laughs> year, uh, which just meant you covered all those people in Woodbridge Hall on the Yale campus, and, and Rick was there, and uh, it was actually a great beat because every single night, all the reporters who had questions for Rick Levin, they all went through me. 
And so I would call him at home every single night around 8 or 9 p.m. And we would have a phone conversation where whatever story I was working on, I would go through with him. And then I would say, okay, I have to go through a set of questions for this reporter and this reporter and this reporter. And, you know, he'd make off-the-record jokes about some of the questions and and sometimes give very serious comments. And uh, But I just gained an appreciation for how well he knew the university inside and out, all the departments, the operations, finances, protests that were going on everything it was just unbelievable the capacity and then shortly before he went uh, to Coursera mm. I had a reunion there and and my wife and I uh, he made time to see us uh, uh, in his office for for a little bit uh, I think we knew he was leaving Yale but he, he sort of didn't know what was next and he was grilling me on online education and then it was fascinating I can't remember how many months later it was uh, when he decided to make the jump to uh, Coursera based on the conversation and Really, the point he had made uh, was the direction he's taken Coursera, which was, I don't think online education has a lot for a, a an elite institution, but it probably has a very vital role to play for employers in the business community and so forth. And you have seen Coursera, I would say, pivot uh, to really focus on courses that will help uh, employees and businesses uh, Im- improve their skills and uh, be prepared for the uh, current economy. That's a great insight story on the Yale Daily News. Everything I know about the Yale Daily News comes from watching the Gilmore Girls. Uh, <laughs> I, I, Rory Gilmore was, uh, you know, editor. Was she editor at some point? I, I think, think that's right. right. Yeah. An accurate depiction of what the newsroom looked like. Oh. Very accurate. Yeah, with all the newspapers yeah. on the pasted up on the wall. You get to paste three to five of your favorite covers at the end of the year. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned Coursera and you mentioned online uh, education. And, you know, there's a lot of concern right now around the future of graduate degrees in particular. Um, you know, we saw these law schools go through major issues a couple of years ago with huge drops in, in enrollment, uh, you know, law schools uh, really scaling back. Um, we're now seeing that with uh, the MBA. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, University of Wisconsin at uh, Madison talked about closing down their full-time MBA program. They eventually reversed that uh, idea a couple of weeks later after protests from, from alumni. But when I go to campus, is everybody's talking about kind of, quote-unquote, the death of the, the MBA. They're really worried about its future. So what's the future of, of all these professional degrees? Yeah, I think what we're seeing, so, so each context is slightly different. But the macro thing, I think, is that as you think about where disruption in higher ed, faster, cheaper programs, as uh, our friend Ryan Craig, a, a, an author and venture capitalist, calls them, uh, can really make an impact. It's in these professional areas where there's a clear outcome that the people attending uh, want out of them, which is entry into a profession, a job of some sort. And employers, if they can uh, get these students for less money, will pay less premium effectively in terms of salaries and makes it a lot more uh, uh, makes it a lot more palatable. What's interesting is Clay Christensen was probably 20 years ago at this point. Uh, after Innovator's Dilemma had come out, he made uh, news, uh, I think in U.S. News and World Report, actually, maybe USA Today, where he said uh, Harvard MBA, uh, the Harvard Business School is in deep trouble. 30 years from now, I think it'll be uh, potentially disrupted. And so it was drop-dead Harvard, says HBS professor, something like that. But the point he was making was that HBS continually goes up in terms of how much it costs, over $150,000 now for an MBA. And year over year, the companies that will recruit graduates from Harvard Business School just are saying, forget it, we can't afford those salaries that are required for those students to pay back the debt. And so they stop recruiting there. And the only folks that recruit there now are financial firms, uh, startups that maybe can promise some outsized uh, uh, option value if they go public and things of that nature, operating companies and really the lifeblood 
of the economy for so many years just don't recruit there anymore. And so his point was we're leaving all of these places without a, an obvious uh, place to get students. And so they have to start figuring out new options that are more affordable and tailored to what their needs are. And it leaves a huge hole, if you will, underneath the MBA market uh, that you'll see new entrants start to disrupt it. And I think that's exactly what is happening uh, is outside of elite business schools, uh, the demand for the MBA is rapidly declining as people are finding faster and cheaper ways to get those skills, whether it's through a general assembly, whether it's through a Coursera, or even whether it's through their undergraduate program, quite frankly, where they're getting business as a, as, as a big part of the degree and then able to level up through the corporate university plural site that the business itself might offer uh, for professional development training. And so the MBA, as a result, I think you're seeing a hollowing out of the uh, programs that are out of that top 20, top 30. So we saw uh, law schools, we saw now business schools. Are we going to see, you know, there's been a, a raft of new uh, professional degree programs, you know, even in journalism uh, and uh, over the over the years. Are we going to see this happen in all these different industries eventually where we're going to see kind of the, the faster, cheaper, better in all different types of professions? Or is this going to be kind of focused mostly, and we haven't talked about medical schools, maybe this medical schools are immune from from this? Well, medical schools are interesting because they have a... So, so let's go to law schools for yeah. one moment because we actually haven't, I would argue, seen disruption of law schools themselves. What we've seen is disruption in the legal industry. Mm-hmm. And so automation that has allowed you to do far more with one lawyer, which used to take 10 lawyers uh, within a law firm. So they're hiring fewer lawyers, less demand for new uh, entry-level lawyers coming out of law school. Uh, In addition, uh, services like LegalZoom have taken out the bottom end of the market. So if you want a will, if you want a basic contract, things of that nature, you don't need to go to a lawyer or a law firm. LegalZoom will do that for you at a predictable rate, not an hourly charge where you're a a little bit annoyed afterwards. And so that's hollowed out the need and demand for lawyers, which has hollowed out the legal market. My concern there for a law school is... If someone in California where they let you sit for the bar, even if you haven't gone to an ABA law school, comes up with an apprenticeship program uh, that's competency-based, you move on upon mastery, you can show your skill set really quickly, uh, some of it's online, the knowledge base, and some of it is actually a practicum experience in a law firm itself, branded with a brand name law firm maybe, uh, that could be highly disruptive and much faster. So then you turn to medical schools, just to get to your question. Uh, medical schools are interesting because you have the same sort of uh, certification protecting the field, if you will. Uh, but what's interesting, I think, is you know you see the rise of holistic medicine yeah. and, and things outside of the Western and, and, tradition. Uh, and other types of healthcare professions as well. So. Absolutely. And, and there's huge demand for those. And that's sort of the low end of the market yeah. where disruptions start, I think. And uh, I've heard university presidents say, we would love to create a competency-based pathway where you could start and get your nursing degree in the first two years, jump off and uh, go into the profession, go and work, and then come back on and continue to add experience and go be a doctor, whatever it might be, and then et cetera. So let's talk about that lifelong learning, right? We know there's this demand for lifelong learning. Uh, Stanford D School a couple of years ago came out with this thing called the Open Loop University, Uh, this idea that uh, when you got accepted to Stanford at the age of 18, you get access to six years of education instead of four that you could use any time throughout your lifetime. So you kind of loop in and and loop out. Uh, I love talking about this idea in talks, but inevitably somebody will stand up, usually the CFO of a university, and say, oh, that sounds great, but how do you fund this idea of lifelong education? We have enough problems with students paying for what they have and also the cost structure of universities really dependent on like a 
regular churn of full-time students. Yeah, so I mean, I, I look, each university is going to have to experiment in this area, uh, but my sense is a place like Stanford, uh, they're asking their alumni to give a fair amount of money each year, and their customers in many ways are actually more the alumni than the students because of the way the business model of these institutions work uh, and, and the hope for big gifts in future years to, to support the endeavor uh, and, and pad the endowment. And so what's interesting, I, I think, is as a tool of alumni engagement rather than just asking for money each year for those great memories and to leave the place better than you found it and so forth. What if that's part of an ask of giving something that actually is tailored to what you need in an ongoing way? The second thing I would say is uh, something that I think Wharton did very well when they went online. And and I think they have more online graduates now than they have in the entire history of the Wharton uh, business school now, uh, which is interesting. Uh, But they really focused around the online experience being at, at times of transition. So you don't necessarily need just general lifelong learning for its own sake. You might use a book for that. Uh, but at times of pivots in your career or when you're going to go do something else or end up in a new city or something like that, that's often when you need those educational moments. And so to have really a, a guide or a Sherpa or someone yeah. alongside you that can really help understand when you need those, you're paying those lifelong dues, but they're keeping up with you. So they're aware of what your life is, maybe hey, I see just in, in the same way there's a financial planner that helps you think about events that you may not foresee. Oh, that's a great idea. Similar yeah. idea around the lifelong learning and then injecting the right learning experience at the right time given how we're thinking about your overall life. Yeah, and you know, this is going to become really important in the future. Uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of work around the future of work and what it's going to look like, you know, the rise of the gig economy. We know most of the new jobs are in this gig economy. Both of us are in the in the gig economy. I spoke at, at Google in New York recently, and I noticed that people would walk around with two different color badges. And it turns out that it depends on whether you're a freelancer, you know, a contractor or a, a, a full-time employee. And Google has more contractors than they have full-time employees. Uh, and, you know, and they're not doing low-level work at Google, right? Many of these people are doing high-level work. So this is really going to become the future. And the question is, employers have always played that critical role in helping um, uh, students adjust or helping their workers adjust to the needs of the workplace, right? You would get an annual review and they would tell you kind of what you're doing well, what you're not doing well, how to get more training, where to go, they'd even pay for it. And the question now is, um, who's going to play that role if you're not working for an employer? And I think that this is a a terrific role for for colleges uh, and, and universities. And indeed, uh, a few weeks ago, Joe Anun from uh, Northeastern, the president of Northeastern, was here doing an event at Gallup around his uh, a new book. And I had a chance to to catch up with him afterwards. And after we take this uh, short break, we'll be back to uh, to hear a little bit about what he had to say. Just got done with this uh, event at uh, at Gallup here, uh, and this new poll that uh, Northeastern has done. And you just came out with a new book on the future of of work. Um, is higher ed is higher ed ready for for the changes that's that are going to happen in the world? Uh, is are higher ed institutions ready and in, in are they educating and preparing students in the way that they need to? Higher, ed, higher education should not be ready only; should lead the way. And if you're asking me what is happening in higher education, what I see is the following. First, people are now realizing the impact of AI on society, including higher ed. Higher ed is realizing that because what we have done is launch AI, but 
we haven't looked at the consequences of AI on society, on work, on people. So first, we're realizing the impact. Second, you are seeing the beginning of some action in, in order to play a role and remain relevant mm-hmm. in society, especially with the changes that we're seeing. So we are not leading yet, and that's our opportunity. So what is the big opportunity? So in the poll, uh, all these people that uh, you interviewed and surveyed said they're kind of ill-prepared or they feel like they're ill-prepared. It seems like this is an opportunity, for example, we talk a lot about lifelong education. This seems like a great opportunity as we think about uh, higher education, not just as a place you go to for a couple of years, early part of your life, but that you actually uh, uh, attend you know, in some way for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Is that, is that, is that the biggest, one of the biggest opportunities facing higher education right now when it comes to the future of work? Yes, that's one of the biggest opportunities, Jeff, because as we know and as we saw and as I mentioned today, the overwhelming majority now of learners are lifelong learners. And you are seeing that the number of uh, undergraduate students who are full-time is really dwindling in the nation. So the opportunity is there. But what's worrisome about the survey today, when we released it, this was news to me, is the fact that people said, we need lifelong learning, but we don't expect it from universities. We expect it from the employers. Why? Because universities uh, have not embraced fully, we have not embraced fully, the notion of lifelong learning and if and as part of our core mission. And if we mean that it is a core mission, we will have to change the, the way we conduct ourselves and our business. So, for instance, we create degrees and we expect them to come. You know, the whole notion of new offerings it has to have employers at the table that will tell us, look, this is what we are expecting. This is what we need. And we can design it accordingly with them. I'm talking here about the lifelong learners. Similarly, the notion of offering a course at your campus is becoming not relevant for the learners because a learner is in the workplace. You know, they are professionals. They are working. So they need you to be with them whenever they can do it at their time. Uh, you know, so the notion of in demand is starting there, is burgeoning, and we need to f- to lifelong learning will uh, will uh, require us to change the way we design programs and curricula, the way we offer them, and the notion of customization of what we do, and personalization is going to be central. And how about cost? Is it part of this maybe that? People think higher education is too expensive, and so when they think about lifelong learning, they think, I'm not going to be able to afford this for the rest of my life. That's certainly uh, an issue, and what I am seeing that the universities that are involved in lifelong learning are much more versatile and much more market-sensitive, to use this language, when it it comes to cost, because you cannot charge... Uh, uh, a very high amount to a person who is already in the workplace and that, and who needs to uh, re-educate uh, herself or who needs to retool. Mm-hmm. So as a matter of fact, 
I think that you are seeing a drop in prices when it comes to lifelong learning because this is a domain that where the competition is there, which is good, and the competition is coming from two uh, so from two places. One is the companies themselves, that, and the companies will say, "Look, we're not going to send our people to you if you charge a very high amount or a high amount." And second is coming from uh, another provider, the for profits. So yes, there, there is a pressure on cost there, and you're absolutely right. The, the survey is a wake-up call yeah. for higher education. Let's talk about uh, robot-proof your book a, a little bit. I was uh, speaking at a high school in Atlanta uh, recently, and this question came up about the jobs of the future, right? And, and, and these are high school students trying to figure out where to go to college, what to major in. What's your advice to, uh, to high school students now if they ask you that question? My advice uh, to high school students is that do not restrict yourself to one field, one domain. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, in, in, as you know, in my book, I provided a blueprint yep. for what they can do. I said, master the technical literacy, namely what, how computer works and how you can interact with them. Master data literacy, uh, namely understand the enormous flow of information generated by um, uh, artificial systems, computing, etc., and try to make sense out of it and navigate it. That's what I call the data literacy. And third, focus on the human literacy, namely focus on what makes us unique as humans, the ability to be creative, entrepreneurial, the ability to be culturally agile, to uh, be empathetic, to work with people and look them in the eye and understand them. And it's integration of the three that's essential. So if you are a, a, a student going to college, go for combined degrees in different right. fields. If, if they don't have a humanics curriculum, you know, integrating the, the three literacies is what I call the humanics curriculum. Yep. Go for c- combined fields that will allow you to do that, combined majors, majors and minors, but also go out test yourself in the real world through experiential So test yourself in the real world. I, I talked a lot in this, uh, in this talk I gave in uh, Atlanta about co-ops, uh, you know, North, and talked a, gave a big plug to, uh, to Northeastern. Uh, why? I'm still amazed, even in this day and age, when we talk about the combination of the soft skills and the hard skills, classroom learning, experiential learning, why are more schools not doing co-ops? The question is the following. Your question is, what is the barrier to entry? And the barrier to entry, I feel, ultimately, is the the faculty himself or herself. Let me explain. Mm-hmm. You know, we have at Northeastern now over 3,000 employers, NGOs, and for-profits worldwide. And that's world, around the world. Wo- right? Worldwide, yeah. over 130 countries. So when faculty come to Northeastern, they know that experiential education is something that we do, and they, we design the courses to integrate the classroom experience with the world experience. But I have to tell you, I've, I saw it myself. When students come back from a co-op, whether it's in San Francisco or in Cape Town, and you are talking about an issue that they lived, whether it's in Shanghai or in New York, 
and you're talking about the economy in Shanghai, you're talking about pollution in Shanghai, they can question you. Right. They can tell you, this is not what I saw. So in other words, they got out of the comfort zone yeah. and you and they get you out of your comfort zone as a faculty. So are, so, are, are the faculty the biggest hurdle then at some of these I schools think, to co I, I, I think ultimately okay. because you have, because we are not interested in with experiential education in sending students to uh, uh, co-op or an, inter- or, or an internship yeah. or any experience. We are interested in the integration in the classroom because before you go, you have to prepare them to understand the place they are going to, to understand themselves. And then to while they are there, we have a mentor uh, uh, that is working with them in the workplace. And when they come back, it's the integration that is key. So the whole continuum, the whole process, means that they are at the center stage, and it's not the lecture right. that is the center stage. But, but, but Joseph, this, uh, this is a way that you differentiate yourself, right? Yes. The Northeastern differentiates itself. It seems in this era when, when so many colleges are struggling that this would be a way that institutions, especially when parents and students are so worried about getting a job afterwards, it seems like this would be... A, Maybe not a simple way, but a way to to differentiate your institution from others. I see signs. And maybe you don't want to encourage no, others to no, no, uh, look, to join you look, in this. Look, uh, the, 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 you <laughs> know, usually, usually, no one has the monopoly of anything okay. eh, because the you know this is a hundred year old innovation, right. and it's amazing that it is still in, considered an innovation in higher education, but. I see signs of change at two levels. Some international universities, namely global universities, non-U.S. universities, are want to really move in in uh, this uh, in ex- and adopt experiential education. But also, I am seeing signs where some liberal arts colleges are doing that because liberal arts colleges are waking up to the fact that they have yeah. to be very relevant in order to attract. The, the students, you know, you know, you wrote about it, you discussed yeah. it, you lectured about it, uh, Jeff yeah. yourself. They, you know, the situation is tough yeah. for uh, liberal arts colleges. So I see some liberal arts colleges adopting experiential education. So let's so let's talk about that, and this will end on this uh, about the future of, of higher ed, particularly institutions. Uh, you know, Clay Christensen recently said, you know, the bottom fifteen twenty five percent of of different sectors of, of higher education are going to face a real tough future. I just wrote a piece about the demographic changes that are coming to the country, particularly in the Midwest and the Northeast, where there are a lot of colleges, as you well know. Uh, you know, places like Boston, New York are going to face a, a big cliff in terms of traditional students. What uh, do you feel like? What do you think of these projections that uh, perhaps hundreds of colleges uh, might close? You saw in your own backyard in Boston uh, a merger or, or a takeover. I guess it would be of uh, a merger of uh, of uh, Wheeling, uh, Wheelock, and in uh, Boston University. Do you foresee more stuff like that, or do you f- see some closures I, coming? What's going to happen? I foresee more of that because, as a matter of fact, we have been asked to take some and, you know, to take over some of these institutions. And, and do you want to do that? Uh, you know, uh, the answer is not clear. Mm. It's not clear because sometimes you have to look at it and say, am I better off launching something de novo rather yep. than taking something and, you know, and so that's the issue that you face constantly. But to answer your question about the future, 
higher education is a diverse endeavor, but it's not differentiated enough. I feel that apart from you know, the institutions that have the huge endowment that will allow them to survive no matter what, people will have to start thinking about their differentiation in order to flourish and in order to attract students. If you want to think about your differentiation, you cannot do it unless you're in tune with the reality of the world. Mm. And that's the new opportunity for higher education. You know, AI is changing the workplace. AI is going to impact lives even more. And if you're oblivious to that, you are going to pay the price. And are too many boards and presidents possibly oblivious to that? Well, I think that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity that we have as presidents in order to lead our uh, constituencies to think about the future and see how we are positioning the institution with respect to this future. Either you lead or you disappear. Perfect. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Always good to be with you. So that was a fascinating conversation with the president of Northeastern who not only has a pulse on the future of higher education, but really the future of work and, dare I say, society. Uh, I'm curious, Jeff, as you were sitting with him during the conversation, what are the one or two aha moments yeah. that just sort of lit you up and said, whoa? You know, people think of Northeastern because of its co-op program, right? So they think of it as a very practical degree. But what really fascinated me was his uh, focus on kind of the, the what I would call the skills of the liberal arts, right? This ability to navigate uh, ambiguity of, of the future and this need for teamwork and problem solving uh, and things like that. So he talks about this these future skills that students are going to need. And, and, and even at a place like Northeastern, which is so focused on you know practical hands-on knowledge uh, that students get through the co-ops that they're going to need to have to figure out how to balance this um, in the curriculum. So I think that Northeastern sometimes gets a knock uh, for being too practically oriented and, and many other colleges do as, as well. But I think many of these colleges are also thinking about how to blend those uh, two things together. It reminds me when Bob Mendenhall, former president of Western Governors, once said to me, you know, Michael, the basis of a really good career program is actually a great liberal arts education and, and content knowledge and skills are not uh, separable. Yeah. They're actually a circle. Yeah. And I uh, thought, thought that was a great way to frame it. So fascinating conversation and uh, really appreciate you all joining us on Future You. As a reminder, you can find us on the web. Jeff Salingo is jeffsalingo.com and on Twitter at jsalingo. I'm Michael Horn. Uh, you can find me on the web at michaelbhorn.com and on Twitter at michaelbhorn. And if you like the show, uh, rate us and subscribe to us on iTunes. It helps us find listeners, and more listeners means a more robust community and more interesting conversations. So thanks again so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.